Amen. Well, good morning, Redeemer Jackson. It really is a delight for me to be with you uh, again uh, to celebrate this uh, 18th anniversary of the church. I'm blessed by the invitation, uh, blessed to be friends with your pastor, Albert McGowan, blessed as MA coordinator to be here at this church, which uh, in many respects is a model of the kinds of churches that are engaged with many MA ministries. And so I am grateful uh, to you all and to be here with you. And I just stopped by this morning uh, to share with you in this message from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, to encourage you to persevere in living by resurrection power. If you would, please look in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and verses 15 to 23. I'll read God's word after which I will pray for us. Here's God's word. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Would you pray with me? Well, thank you for your word, this word that is not dead, but that is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No, God, we are all in this place naked and exposed to your eyes, the one to whom we must all give account, and this is good news. Because this means you know precisely what we stand in need of this morning. So would you take these efforts of mine, weak and unworthy though they may be, and use them to bless your people. Meet us where we are, O oh God, and give us what we need. Faith, hope, peace, joy, correction, conviction, whatever it might be, that we would be people who live more and more for the glory of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we ask these things. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, one of the things that is true of me and my wife, frankly, for 
having raised uh, four children into adulthood, is that we have seen a lot of Disney movies over the course of our lives and marriage. In fact, one in particular, we might say I've seen The Lion King hundreds of times. Uh, even so, uh, e you know, that my wife and I on vacation went to see the new Lion King in 2019 all by ourselves, no children in tow. Heavily influenced by this movie, and I'm sure many of us in here know the story. The genius of the folks at Disney is when they make a movie uh, for children, they put some stuff in there that's for the adults, that the adults will get to, to make them interested as well. And so in this movie, right, the Lion King, Simba is the heir to the throne and he'd been tricked by his wicked uncle Scar uh, to, to think that he had caused his father's death. And so Simba ran far away from the pride land uh, as, a, as a young lion cub and he runs into this meerkat and warthog Timon and, and Pumbaa and he grows up with them living this, this motto, Hakuna Matata, no worries, trouble-free philosophy. But things got so bad in the pride land that Simba's childhood friend Nala comes looking for, for help and, and guess who she runs into in her search? She, she runs into Simo, uh, Timo, uh, Simba, Timon, and, and Pumbaa and, and, and here's Simba's friends that, that thought that he was just a fun-loving lion with no responsibilities and Nala shows up and, and breaks the news that their buddy is the king. Of course, they don't believe uh, what she's saying, and they fall out in laughter. And Timon says, lady, you've got your lions crossed. But Nala persists, and Simba has to admit that he was going to be the king, but that was a long time ago. And so Timon says, so let me get this straight. You mean you're the king, and you never told us? And Simba says, look, hey, I'm still the same guy. And then Timon's eyes get big and he says, yeah, but with power. It's one thing to have a buddy that, that's a great guy, but it's quite another thing if that guy has got real power and authority. And the underlying message is this, we all want to be close to power. If we know somebody with power, we think that's going to make my life better for me if I'm next to that person. You've heard this phrase, right? Haven't you? It's not, it's not really about what you know, it is about who you know, right? And that means that, that, that you need to know somebody with some authority. I, I remember way, way back in, in college when I was still a, a, an engineering student and I was a member of our National Society of Black Engineers chapter and we were at our national conference and I was trying, I was trying to get a summer internship and I had a, a chapter member who said, hey, listen, I want to introduce you to this guy uh, from, uh, from Motorola. He's here at the job fair and I had only one question for my chapter member. One question. Can he get me a job? If, if he can't get me a job, I am not going to waste my time talking to him. I wanted to know that he was somebody who had the authority to give me a job. And I put on my, my game face and I went to work. You want to know people with power. It's usually not simply because people with power can make things happen for us, but it's because we know that that's also often 
the road to obtaining power and influence ourselves. But the problem is that our eyesight is often too limited and our desires are very regularly too weak and our hopes are often too small because our eyesight, our desires, and our hopes are focused almost exclusively on ourselves. And what the text before us declares is that 2,000 years ago, when the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, what was on display was the surpassing greatness of God's power. What was on display for the world was the might of his strength. And what is amazing is that the Apostle Paul says in verse 18 that this surpassing greatness of God's power is at work in those who believe in Jesus Christ. The power that raised God, Jesus from the dead is, is presently at work in those who follow Jesus. You want to be close to power? Do you want real power? Then you got to be close to Jesus. And let me be clear, I'm not talking about the power to get a job. I'm not talking about the power to do well in school. I'm not talking about the power to do whatever it is we want to, to do or desire. I am talking about the power to live the life of faith that God calls. Know that God demands that every living person live. It is impossible to live out God's call to you and I apart from resurrection power. The apostle says so much in this prayer, in these verses, but I want to focus on three things, three things that he says in verses 18 to 19. I want to talk to you this morning about the hope of God's call, the hope of God's call. I want to talk to you about the riches of God's glorious inheritance and the greatness of God's power. The hope of God's call, the riches of God's glorious inheritance and the greatness of God's power. The hope of God's call, our text starts in verse 15, but if we were to back up and read the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1, we would hear the Apostle Paul beginning this letter praising God for his glorious grace, the, the glorious grace of God that is seen in God choosing to save rebellious sinners before the foundation of the world, the, 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 the glorious grace of God in his choosing to redeem them, to, to bring them back to himself by the blood of Jesus Christ, that blood through which the forgiveness of our trespasses comes, the, the lavish grace of God that is seen in revealing to us the mystery of his will, his purpose set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of all of time to unite all things in Jesus Christ. And then Paul says that, that God has given the Holy Spirit to those whom he has saved as the down payment of their inheritance until they acquire the full possession of it. And we don't have time to do this justice this morning, but do not miss 
how much this chapter indeed, how much in this entire letter to the Ephesian churches, the apostle Paul grounds the Christian life in the work of the triune God. We sang this morning, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one, God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. He, he says the Father has blessed us in Christ. He has chosen us in Jesus Christ. He's predestined us for adoption in Jesus Christ, but he's done this for us in Christ. We are redeemed by Christ. We have redemption by his blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses by his blood shed on this cross. And, and this blood brought redemption by Jesus Christ, which was predestined by the Father, is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Oh, brothers and sisters, far from some, a dry doctrine that should be avoided, the work of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a cause for praise and rejoicing. Because of the firmness of God's salvation, Paul in verses 15 and 16 is led to thankfulness in prayer for the saints in the Ephesian churches. Saints, saints simply, simply means holy ones. It's not a term that's given just for a few worthy Christians. It's a reference to those who have repented of their rebellion and sin and turned to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And if that describes you this morning, then you are included in this prayer. What does he pray in verse 17? That the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Wisdom and revelation is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the goal of this wisdom and revelation, the apostle says, is the knowledge of God. It is to know God, not to know God for the first time, because as Christians, they already know God. It's a prayer to know God better, to grow in their knowledge of God, to continue growing in their knowledge of God, that their life should not be one of simply drudging through the daily grind, hoping for a better tomorrow. No, 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 that there should be a growing in the knowledge of God and resurrection power is necessary if that's going to happen. And Paul knows, he knows that if this wisdom and revelation is continually given to them, then verse 18 will happen. The eyes of their hearts will be enlightened to understand the hope of God's calling. What is the hope of God's calling. Let me say a couple of things first before answering that question directly. First, 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 I always like to point this out. Note with me that these are all, uh, that these are all plural pronouns. Every time the Apostle Paul says you in our text, it's y'all. 
Every time he says yours, it's y'all. Our, our tendency is to default towards uh, the things that, that, that apply to me as an individual, uh, privatized reading of passages like this. And certainly these things do apply to me as an individual or you as an individual, but he's speaking to the Christian community in Ephesus about his prayer for them collectively. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you all the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of you all's hearts enlightened that you all may know what is the hope to which he has called you all. Secondly, notice that it's having the eyes of, of our hearts enlightened, the hope of God's call does not start with what we see with the eyes in our heads. <laughs> the hope of God's call begins with God opening up the eyes of our hearts. This is, again, the Spirit's work. We don't enlighten the eyes of our hearts. We have them enlightened by the Holy Spirit. This is a prayer for spiritual insight to grab hold of and live by the truth of God's purposes, not our own. The hope of his call is that through this enlightenment, we begin to realize all the blessings that he has declared in verses 3 to 14 of this first chapter. The apostle will make himself much more plain in chapter 4 when he says to them in the first three verses of that chapter, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk or live in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The hope of God's call to the followers of Jesus Christ is intimately connected to the ways that they walk together, the ways that they live together as God's people. He calls us to harmonious loving fellowship with him and with one another in Jesus Christ. This is across all barriers of race and class and gender and age and likes and dislikes and abilities and disabilities and socioeconomic status and academic achievement and whatever partitions of life there are in this world. This is a call to loving fellowship in Christ across all of those lines. This is the call. And when the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, we realize that we have no means of living out that call apart from the resurrection power of Jesus Christ at work in us. And, and, and we got to say, right, are we regularly asking or seeing, how's it going? <laughs> How are we doing at this? Where is, 
Where is the conflicts? Where is the disruptions that come as we strive to live out this call? Where is the, where is the kind of uh, the feelings that we have that things are not really the way I want them to be? Where's that going on in our lives that is pulling us away from the hope of, of God's call in Jesus Christ? Whether it's the political turmoil in the world, the social upheaval in our society, Paul wants us to know the hope of God's call. It is a, this hope is a present reality that points to a, a, a future. Hope points us forward to something that is coming. This hope is connected to what he's already said that God is going to sum up. He's going to unite all things in Jesus Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And what we look forward to is the fullness of life in the presence of God, unimpeded by any corruption in ourselves or in the world. And we struggle. We struggle because right now we are impeded by corruption. We are impeded by corruption in ourselves and in others and in our world. We do endure life in this world that can actually crush hopes. While we look forward to the fullness of life in the presence of God, brothers and sisters, we are called right now to live a new life in Jesus Christ. And we need resurrection power for that. The second thing that the apostle says that he wants us to know and understand are the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. This is really just a, a parallel to the hope of God's call. For, for just like the, the hope of God's call, the riches of God's glorious inheritance uh, uh, points us forward to something that is coming in the future. Slow down for just a second and try to wrap our minds around what he's praying for. I want you to know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. He describes this, listen, in terms that are meant to get you and I excited. These words are included here so that we might understand that there is nothing better, there is nothing more satisfying, there's nothing more exciting than belonging to God through faith in Jesus Christ. The question is, do we believe it? Look, I, if I came up to you and look, I said, look, Pastor Al, you, you didn't notice, you didn't realize this, but you are, uh, you are a long lost uh, nephew of Jeff Bezos. And, and you know, he has, he has decided, you wasn't looking for him, but he was looking for you. And he found you and he has said, you know what? I'm gonna make you a majority share owner in Amazon. Pastor L would be like, you know, I'm, I love pastoring y'all. <laughs> You know, you know, no, he wouldn't say that, but, but he'd be excited. He'd be excited. He'd be excited. But listen, can I tell you this? That 
does not begin to compare with what the apostle is describing here. In verse 14, he said that the promised Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That inheritance is life with God himself right now. In Jesus Christ, we get God, the Holy Spirit, as a down payment, and the down payment is just the first installment, and it is always of the same kind as the full payment. What is the believer's full inheritance if the Holy Spirit Spirit is the down payment is nothing other than God himself the Holy Spirit is the pledge of your inheritance which affirms that God belongs to you and you belong to him however when he prays in verse 18 that we know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, there's a subtle shift that is meant to blow our minds. The prayer is not that we know what our inheritance is, it is that we know that we are God's glorious inheritance. One commentator put it this way, God's people comprising of both Jews and Gentiles are his inheritance, his own possession in whom he will display to the universe the untold riches of his glory. That God should set such a high value on a community of sinners rescued from perdition and still bearing too many traces of their former state might well seem incredible were it not made clear that he sees them in Christ as from the beginning he chose them in Christ. As a consequence then, Paul prays that his readers might appreciate the extraordinary value which God places on, on them he views them as his beloved son and esteems them accordingly. And this is true for all who are in Christ. Christians, do you know who you are? I know that you're still struggling with sin. I know I'm still struggling with sin. I know that we continue to disappoint ourselves and we continue to disappoint others. Faith in Jesus Christ does not mean that we're no longer bearing the traces of our former selves. It means that we're God's beloved. Apostle uses this language to let us know that, that God has a rich, glorious inheritance, and it's us. Romans chapter 8 and verse 19, he puts it this way. He says, the whole creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The whole creation waits. We live by resurrection power now, knowing that God will put his beautiful, diverse, redeemed people on display for the whole creation to see the riches of his glory. 
God's inheritance, y'all, is not going to be a little private party for each individual believer, but rather as we join that great multitude that no man could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God. And, and what is at the center of this inheritance? Yell, you got it, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Jesus is rising from the dead, secured this inheritance. The glory of the resurrection is God's determination to call people to himself that they might belong to him and he might belong to them. Here's the third thing. The third thing that he prays for, for us to know, is the immeasurable greatness of God's power in we who believe. According to the working, he says, of his mighty strength that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. If the first two prayer points primarily uh, point us forward to the hope that, that's to come and to the full inheritance that's to come. This one clearly defines how it is that God's people will actually make it to that day. What does he want us to know? The immeasurable greatness of God's power, not, not towards us, but in us who believe. The Bible gives us great displays of God's mega power. What is our supreme example of God's mighty power at work? Is it, the, is it the flood from Noah's day in Genesis 6 to 9? Is it the parting of the Red Sea? Is it the falling down of the, of the walls of Jericho in, in Joshua? Is it delivering Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the firing furnace in Daniel? Is it, is it God delivering Daniel from the mouth of the, of the lions? Is it, is it Jesus' walking on water or healing the sick? No, the pinnacle of God's power at work is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. God has done what no man could do. He raised Jesus from the dead. First, he arrested the process of natural decay, refusing to allow his Holy One to see corruption. Then he didn't just reverse the process, restoring the dead to, to new life, but, but he transcended it. He raised Jesus to an altogether new life, immortal, uh, immortal, glorious, and free, which nobody had yet ever experienced and which no has experienced since or not yet. The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in every person who believes in Jesus Christ. Do you see why I said that our desires and our hopes and our longings are too small? We don't really know the fullness of what God has given us in Christ. That's why Paul's prayer is necessary. Notice he's not praying for a fresh blessing. There ain't no need to pray for a fresh blessing. He's already praised God in verse 3 of this chapter for blessing us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
The prayer is, is a prayer for knowledge. The prayer is not even a prayer for power or a prayer for hope or endurance or inheritance or riches, although all of those things are mentioned. It is a prayer for knowledge and understanding that God would reveal to his people that which they would not know unless he revealed it through his spirit. His spirit. And here's why we need to know that resurrection power is at work in those who follow Jesus Christ. We need to know it so that we don't become complacent with regard to the things of God. What do I mean? We need to know it so that we don't become a spiritually lazy. We need to know it so that our eyes will be firmly fixed on what matters most. You don't need resurrection power to get good grades. You don't need resurrection power to get a promotion on your job. You don't need resurrection power to lose weight or get in shape. You don't need resurrection power to do a lot of things that you want to do. In fact, maybe most things that you want to do, but we are desperate to know and exercise the resurrection power of God if we are going to do anything of value for the kingdom of God, either as individuals or most importantly as a church. As Anglican, Anglican pastor N.T. Wright puts it, Christians are Christians are already, as it were, resurrection people. Their bodies still need to be transformed, but in terms of the resurrection-related imagery of sleeping and waking, they are already awake and must stay that way. You and I need resurrection power to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace when things get rough. You and I need resurrection power to patiently endure suffering as a witness of Jesus Christ. You and I need resurrection power to truly love people who we think are unlovable. You and I need resurrection power to live free from the seemingly all-consuming preoccupation that we have with ourselves. You and I need resurrection power not to seek power for ourselves, but instead to use any power and authority we have for the benefit and blessing of others. You and I need resurrection power to live the life that God has called us to live. Self-denying, self-sacrificing, truth-telling, praise-giving, promise-keeping, neighbor-loving, hope-filled, Jesus-believing, God-glorifying life. In other words, you and I need resurrection power to be able to declare and live every day in this truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the goal of living by resurrection power is to see his lordship actually expanding through us over through the entirety of the creation. Church, let's continue to live by resurrection power. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your spirit who blesses us, Lord, who empowers us. We ask you that you would again and again and again enlighten the eyes of our hearts to know our hope to know our inheritance, the riches of it, and to know the greatness of your power that is already and always at work in us, that we might bear faithful witness to you in this world. We ask this, Lord, for your glory, for our good, through Jesus Christ. Amen.